Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Job, the book of Job. It's right near the center of your copy of God's Word, if you have it there, just before Psalms. We'll be right at the beginning of this book, Job chapter 1. We've been walking for a few weeks through God's Word and finding hope for the discouraged. And today we're going to be looking at hope in personal suffering, hope in personal suffering. Suffering. There's no doubt that none of us makes it through life in this world without suffering. Job in particular, God must have loved an awful lot because he really went through the ringer. As we walk through this passage today, we'll see this central idea that we should trust God's goodness even when we don't understand his ways. We should trust God's goodness when we don't understand his ways. Just a couple of weeks ago that I saw a headline pop up on one of my feeds that said something along the lines of, my son, my only son is gone. This was from a well-known Christian blogger, and I thought perhaps it was a blog maybe about a God giving his son Jesus or something like this, and I clicked on it and I realized that this blogger has a son 20 years old in college. His son that day had been playing a game with some friends and collapsed suddenly and died on the spot. And as I read this, I actually have corresponded with this person, but I don't know him personally very well, but I couldn't imagine the, the brokenheartedness, the grief that he was experiencing. And so in a moment like that, when you either observe that or experience that, that we have to ask ourselves the question, God, when we experience a grief so shattering, an agony so overpowerful, overpowering, how in the world Are we to respond to this? How can we process emotions this great? There are people sitting in this room who have lost children, who know that feeling, who know that broken heartedness. And even as God's children in those moments, we, we ask God, what are you up to? Where is the good in this situation? Well, the book of Job, in some ways, helps us as God's children know how to process our grief, our brokenness, our suffering. Now, Genesis, as you may know, is the first book in our Bibles, but many writers believe that Job was the first book written because of the language and the history and what's going on here, man in the ancient Near East. Job seems like a good person in every way, the kind of person who'd ask, why do bad things happen to good people? And he helps us answer this question. This book is somewhere close to 4,000 years old, somewhere between 3,700 and 4,000 years old, which means that for thousands of years, God's people have been seeking answers to this question. Job is one of our five wisdom books, Job's, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, which more than any other section in the Old Testament wrestle with this question as individuals, how do we relate our pain, our emotion, life to our creator? You see, pain tends to push followers of God into one of two corners. Some of us respond to pain by saying, I know God is good. And because God is good, he can't be sovereign. Because if he were sovereign and good, he'd keep this from happening to me. Others of us, though, respond to pain differently. And say, I know God is sovereign. He spoke everything into existence, so he must not be truly loving. 
Because if this sovereign God were loving, he wouldn't allow this to happen to me. And so the question becomes, is it that God can't prevent this or that God won't prevent this? But the picture we have in the book of Job is of a God who is absolutely powerful and personally loving. So neither of these is correct. Let's read together Job 1, verses 1 through 5. Job 1, verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one in his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Job, by any stretch, by any definition, is a blessed man. And this blessing at some level seems to be connected to the fact that he was a also God-fearing man. Verse 1, Job was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Job turns away from sin. In other words, you could say his life is characterized by repentance and faith. If there's any Old Testament, Old Covenant Christian who's a gospel-centered Christian, it's Job. He lives his life by repentance and faith, but Job is also a family man. Verse 2, he has seven sons and three daughters. Now, these, just, these aren't just random numbers. Seven and three are highly significant numbers in the ancient Near East and in Israelite culture in particular. God creates in seven days. Seven is the number of completeness. Noah had had three sons. Abraham entertained three strangers, and you can see this as you continue reading through Scripture, the same idea. Well, if you add seven and three together, you get ten, another significant number in Scripture. Now, we can't make too much of these numbers, but there's no doubt that they are communicating how highly blessed Job is. It's not that any one of them correlates to one specific thing, but they communicate that this is a highly blessed man, and Job is a good dad. Verse 5 tells us he regularly consecrates his children to the Lord, offers sacrifices for his family. Thus, Job did continually. Job is a spiritual leader in his home. We had the model of Jacob a few weeks ago. Jacob was a passive failure of a dad. Job is a success by any definition, acting as a priest, interceding for his family to the Lord. He has a large family, and he leads them to love God and love each other. And he's been successful because these loving relationships have carried into the next generation. His kids, with their own houses now, like hanging out together. That's success. That's not an easy thing to do. It's Thanksgiving all the time in the Job house. Job's also a rich man. Verse 3 possesses 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen, 500 female donkeys, very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. 
The list again starts with seven and three. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels. Job has the picture-perfect family. He has the ideal amount of wealth. He has the dream life. He's got it rolling in every way. In fact, you might say he's the ideal southern gentleman. A very large plantation, large family, many flocks. He's got it going on. He's not the kind of man who shows up Sunday to make everyone else happy. He's a sincere follower of the Lord. Devoted in his personal and his family life in a way that's believable to his children because they seemingly follow God as well. Job does everything right. Humanly possible. He does everything right. And everything's going right. And over all of this, a sovereign God is ruling Job's steps. Let's pick up our text again and look in verse 6. Job 1, verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered, my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. He'll curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Ephesians chapter 2 describes Satan this way. The prince of the power of the air. 1 Peter 5 says he's a roaring lion. 2 Corinthians 11, he's an angel of light. Revelation 12, he's a great dragon. Hebrews 2, he's the one who has the power of death. John 16, he is the ruler of this world. Satan is an immensely powerful creature. And Romans 16, 20 tells us the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Satan, an immensely powerful creature, can't go one millimeter farther than God says he can. And Job 1 gives us a beautiful yet troubling picture of how this works. Verse 10, Satan says he can't touch Job because the Lord has put a hedge around Job. The Lord protects Job. And the prince of the power of the air is like a flea beating on the door of a stronghold. He can't penetrate it. But verse 11 introduces us to the central crisis of this book. Touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Satan can't touch Job because God won't allow him to touch Job. Which is what makes what happens next so deeply troubling. Job is about to become a suffering man. Job has a beautiful family. 
beautiful herds, beautiful homes, a vibrant relationship with the Lord, more wealth than he could ever spend. But that's all about to change. Let's look at verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. We'll pause there for a moment. Job's about to lose everything he owns. Job's family loves to hang out together. All the kids are at Big Brother's house, and the news starts to come back to Job's house. Three herds, three groups of servants, gone. The only survivors in each case are the messengers who came back. It's sort of like watching a movie where a warlord comes in and wipes out an entire village but allows one to survive so he can tell the story. The text is remarkably dramatic. Messenger one comes and has, he's no doubt breathlessly speaking while he's yet speaking. Messenger two comes. While he's yet speaking, messenger three comes. In a matter of moments, this man who was the wealthiest man in all the East finds out he's lost everything. But it's messenger four that provides the most devastating news of all. Look in verse 18 now. While the third messenger was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. It fell upon the young people, and they're dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Job loses everything he owns, and now he's losing all the people he loves. He loses his family. I mean, let's pause here and imagine this for a moment. Imagine your Job. One shows up while he's speaking, another shows up while he's speaking, another shows up, and then the fourth shows up, and while the third is yet speaking, he says, your family is dead, all your kids gone. Job has to be in shock. There's no way to process this much pain this quickly. There's no way he can deal with these pieces of news back to back to back to back. Job is devastated. And moments like this, when we're in shock, they reveal our first instincts. You see, emergencies make prayer warriors out of atheists. When there's nowhere else to appeal, you appeal to some higher power. And Job's first instinct upon hearing this news is to mourn and worship. Look at verse 20. After hearing this news, Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Wealthy men in Job's day wore robes over their 
clothing. So Job tears his robe and shaves his head as a sign of his grief. So it's important to note, we can't shortcut this, that the worship that follows doesn't shortcut the agony of his pain. This is not the time for trite Christian phrases. God's always up to something good, ain't he? The sun will come up tomorrow. It is, however, a time for answering this question. When God is all you have, will he be enough? And for Job, the answer is a resounding yes. Naked I came from my mother's womb. And naked I shall return. The Lord gave. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, let me ask you a question. Who did this to Job? Satan. I mean, God gave Satan room to operate. And he brings about death and destruction on every side. But what does Job say in response to this? The Lord gave. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the Lord's name. He doesn't blame the tribes who attacked his herd. He doesn't blame lazy herdsmen. Why weren't they alert? He doesn't blame the weather. He doesn't blame Satan or his spiritual forces. Job recognizes the sovereign hand of God in his circumstances. So, the weather, the attackers, they're the immediate cause. Like, they did this. Satan is a secondary strategizing cause stirring this up. But Job knows that God himself is the ultimate cause. So where does Job's response come from? Job recognizes that God, not Job, owns all things. Job's gospel is no prosperity gospel. I mean, he blesses God's name when he's healthy, wealthy, and happy. And he blesses God's name when he's poor, lonely, devastated. But I gotta ask, I mean, if God is working this for good, where is the good in this story? Well, hold on to that question, but for now, what Job knows, he doesn't know this by experience, he knows this by faith. He knows that if you lose everything but hold on to the Lord, it's gonna be okay. You lack nothing. Yet there's another level of, of experience, of another level of suffering he has yet to experience, and that's the loss of his health. Job 2, verse 1. Let's pick up reading there. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth. It's almost like God is provoking Satan. A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. 
Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, behold, he's in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Then he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job's suffering is layering. Status and stuff, gone. Family, gone. Health, now that's gone too. And in each of these areas, the Lord is placing his finger on an area of life that we tend to idolize. For some of us, it's wealth and status and how people look at us and think of us and the car we drive and the house we own and the, and the, the clothes our kids wear. For others of us, it's our family. We idolize our family in place of the Lord. And for others of us, it's our health. We work out, we eat right, we do what we can, and we trust that it's all going to be okay. Might even have a surgery to stave off the evidence of aging. Job is remarkable. I mean, verse 10, when he says, shall we receive good from the Lord and not also evil? In all this, he did not sin with his lips. Three times in this passage, we're told that Job is a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Job never says this about himself. God says it about Job twice, and once the writer himself says it. Job is a godly man. And even Job has a tipping point. The first two chapters of Job introduce us to Job's story. The next 40 chapters introduce us to Job's agony as he questions, as his friends try to help and counsel him, as he wrestles with what this means. They take us behind the curtain of his grief, his thinking, his emotion. So let's pick up in verse 11. Job 2, 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come and show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust in their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Job is now a questioning man. Don't worry, we're not going to go through all 40 chapters at the pace we've gone through the first two. We're going to blitz through 40 chapters and see if we can find some answers to our questions. The book of Job is just an incredible gift from God to us because it shows us how God's children process grief, how we process pain and suffering, how friends try to help not so successfully, and how God himself intervenes in the end. Chapters 3 through 37 are a series of conversations between Job and his friends 
trying to understand the mystery of divine providence. The mystery of divine providence. Now, the introduction we have to these three friends at the end of chapter 2 is to remarkably wise and empathetic men. You know, I'm just going to tell you a secret. Men don't do empathy that well. I know that's a shock to all you ladies out there, but that's generally true. But these men, they're pretty good. They sit silently with Job in his grief for a week. That's a long time to sit together and weep, not say anything. But then Job talks, and then they all start talking. And then 17 speeches later, we've got some encouragements. We've got some good counsel. We've got some accusations, some bad counsel. Job getting defensive. You see, his friends, they're just trying to help, and their theory is this. Job, just think about this. If all these bad things are happening to you, you must have done something wrong. You must have done something to deserve this. Eliphaz speaks first. And he's sort of your classic passive-aggressive guy. He doesn't exactly call Job a fool, like you're such a fool, but he implies it. Chapter 5, verse 4, he says, The fool's children, Job, are far from safety. Look what happened to your kids. But then several chapters later, chapter 15, he gets direct. Your own mouth, he says, condemns you. Now Bildad says, certainly God can't be at fault. He tries to defend God's character. God is just. So God would never punish someone unjustly. So Job must be the problem here. Well, then Zophar jumps in and he tells Job, if you just repent, I mean, just stop it, dude. Just stop and repent and it'll all be okay. But what's the problem? Job isn't suffering because he's a sinner. Now, he's a sinner because all men are sinners. All people are born in sin. But that's not why he's suffering. God's already told us three times he is a blameless and upright man. Job isn't suffering because of something He's done, which brings us to the limits of human wisdom. We meet friend number four, it's chapter 32. Job and the first three friends have a lot of life experience. Elihu is a little bit different. As a young man, he knows he doesn't know very much, so he sits back for a while. But it's time for Elihu to speak up. He wants to be heard. You see, Elihu isn't just young. He's also very passionate. Job 32, verse 2. Then Elihu burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger at Job's three friends because they had found no answer. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer, he burned with anger. He's angry at Job. He's angry at his friends. And now he's angry with God because there is no answer. Now, the three old friends, the wise, empathetic men, tried to assign reasons to God's providence. They tried to say, well, here's why this is happening, Job. You must have done something wrong. Because you've done all these things wrong, clearly that's what's going on here. Elihu is young, but he's not stupid. That ain't working, so he runs down a different track. He doesn't say, look, look, guys, we're, we're wasting our time. We don't know why any of this is happening. So I'm going to ask a different question, and that is, what do we do? 
How do we respond? Since we're all here, let's figure out a plan. In the end, though, Elihu proclaims God's majesty, but he ends up accusing Job just like the three old men in chapter 35. God doesn't hear an empty cry. He says, Job, you open your mouth in empty talk. You're defensive, you're denying what's wrong. You see, and, and these men are in a difficult spot because the picture we have here is a conflicted picture. They're giving bad advice, and they're making accusations, but what options do they have? They can blame Job or they can blame God, and they all know it's not right to blame God, so it must be Job's fault. The friends move from empathy with his plight to general counsel to direct accusation. They're well-intentioned, but they miss the mark. I mean, to summarize the help that Job gets, it looks something like this. Job, this rots, dude. I mean, this really, really rots. But you must have done something. I mean, it all looks really nice on the outside. You, your, your pretty family, you know, offering sacrifices. But there must be something there, Job. There must be something underneath, some secret problem. You better take care of it, buddy. So in the end, they interact from a perspective of suspicion an accusation rather than truth and love. Well, in the end, Job himself questions God's purposes. Job 31, what would be my portion from God above? I mean, isn't disaster for workers of iniquity? Doesn't God see my ways and number all my steps? Yet in all of this, God is ruling, and he graciously answers Job. We've met the sovereign God, and now we meet the sovereign, gracious God. Chapters 38 through 41. The Lord challenges Job, and he says, okay, all right, big boy. If you want to challenge me, you better put on your big boy pants. Job 38 and 40, dress for action like a man. Vernacular, put on your big boy pants. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Oh, you want to come swim in the deep end of the pool. All right, we'll throw you in and see how it goes. I've got some questions for you, Job 38, 4 and 5. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, Job, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely, Job, you know. Then God concludes in chapter 42, on earth there is no one like God, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. And here's the thing that is so amazing and yet so confusing. God answers Job without answering Job's questions. He basically says, I'm God, you're not, trust me. Yet if you go through hell on earth, it'll make you question anything. But what we see is that when we don't understand, when we can't see, God isn't obligated to interact with us like we think he should. Yet in the end, God's children still turn to him in faith. In the end, Job is a trusting man, chapter 42. 
Throughout the book of Job, Job is responding to his friends and to the Lord. Sometimes he doubts. Sometimes he wavers. Sometimes he even accuses God. Yet in the end, he always returns to trust. You see, what we have this morning is an advantage on Job. Because we're told right away, there's this conversation going on in the heavenly throne room between Satan and God. Job doesn't know any of that. He doesn't know why this is happening. He doesn't know where this is coming from. I mean, we do because God tells us. He knows his circumstances, he knows his pain, and he knows his God. That's all he knows. And after losing everything, Job's response in Job 42 is remarkable. God says, come on in the deep end. And then Job says, I know, God, that you can do all things. That no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Therefore, I repent in dust and ashes. Job first grieves in dust and ashes because of the loss of his family. He secondly grieves because of his sin. Because of his failure to trust God's goodness. Where does this kind of trust come from? Job chapter 18 and 19, we're at one of Job's most vulnerable points, where Job is really weakening. He's lost everything, lost those he loves. His friends are accusing him of wickedness. And the last thing we've heard from one of his friends is from Bildad, who tells him, look out, Job, God punishes the wicked. Job responds in agony to his friend's attack. How long will you torment me? How long will you break me in pieces with words? Have you ever been there? We're in a tough spot. Someone may even be trying to help, but they're just making it work. They're breaking you in pieces with their words. It is not true. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. The wounds that words leave may not leave a mark, but they leave the deepest hurt. So in the midst of such agony, where does hope, where does trust come from? You see, Job can trust because his confidence isn't in himself. It's in another. And it's in Job 19, verse 25, that we have one of the most beautiful statements in all of Scripture. For I know, Job says, that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. He says, guys, at the end, I don't have good answers. But ultimately, I don't have to answer for myself. There is another, and he will answer for me. Job's confidence wasn't in himself. It was in another Trusting Christ today gives us strength to endure life's greatest agonies today. The book of Job raises so many questions that can't ultimately be answered in this life. Sometimes we suffer terribly. And if we look within for answers... There are no good answers. And we begin to look around, asking for answers, and there are no good answers. But our Redeemer entered our world and suffered. Our Redeemer hung abandoned on that cross, 
looked around, and there was no help. In that moment, he looked up and cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was a truly God-forsaken man. You see, God abandoned his son so that he will never abandon you. So in that day, when you're asking yourself, as someone, or someone else is asking you, what in the world is wrong? You can say, I don't know, it hurts so bad, but I do know my Redeemer lives. You see, our hope can't be in ourselves. If we hope in ourselves, our hope ends with ourselves. We must hope in another. And for everyone who looks at this moment, at this Redeemer, we have two eternal options. One is an eternity of suffering without this Redeemer. And the other is an eternity of peace and joy in spite of earthly suffering with this Redeemer. Oh, friend, if you are here and you don't know Jesus as your Redeemer, would you turn from your sin and trust him? He's the only way to be delivered from the penalty of your sin and also from the brokenness and suffering of this life. Well, a few minutes ago, we asked the question, where is God working good in this story? You can ask it another way. How do God's children wisely process suffering? What is some wisdom for suffering? Well, friends, we don't always know the point of suffering. But suffering is never pointless. In the end, Job doesn't tell us why suffering happens. We know at one level it's a response to the brokenness of creation at the fall. But Job does tell us how to respond to suffering. God is the ultimate cause of all things, yet he's not the author of evil. We can't assign immediate reasons to every circumstance as much as we would like to. There are times when there is an immediate and obvious cause for suffering. Someone imbibes too much alcohol, hops behind the wheel of a car, kills someone. Cause and effect. Fairly clear. There are other times, though, where it's not clear at all. A lovely young child contracts a fatal disease. We don't know where it came from. There's nothing that can be done, and the family watches its own heart fade away. Well, what do we do in those moments? Well, one thing we don't do is try to read the tea leaves. God uses humans, weather, circumstances, so does Satan. Satan uses humans, weather, and circumstances. Some are tools of God. Some are tools of Satan. Because we don't know, we should be slow to assign cause. And the lesson from Job's friends is this is especially true when we're trying to help somebody else. I mean, godly friends are a gift in grief. But Job's seemingly godly friends drop the ball. Romans 8, 28, 
It's one of the most frequently quoted verses in our Bibles. God works all things together for good. And he does. Every word of that is true. But he doesn't work everything together to make us feel good or accomplish what we think is good, good as we see it. You see, Romans 8 goes on. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. See, our good is that life goes like we want it to. God's definition of good is that we look more and more like Jesus, that we're conformed to the image of his son. That's the ultimate good. Secondly, grieving is a good and necessary part of being human. Job lost everything. In the end, God doubled his fortune, gave him seven more sons and three more daughters. But neither Job nor his friends knew that's going to happen when all this happens. And even when that happens, Job is never the same. You can't lose 10 kids and be the same. And Job is never the same after this. The shortest verse in our English translations is John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. Jesus wept, but he never sinned. You see, grief is God's gift to us to help us process our pain. There's a time to say the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But there's also a time to say, Psalm 44, 25, our soul is bowed down to the dust. Or Psalm 74, 1, oh God, why do you cast us off? Or Psalm 79, verse 5, how long, oh Lord? I want to say two things here. First of all, if you're suffering and you're grieving, that is okay. Like, that is God's gift to help you process what you're experiencing. The loss of a spouse. The loss of a child. The loss of hope. The loss of a career. The loss of a marriage. The loss of a family. I mean, at some point, that grief moves to renewed hope in God. But grief happens at different paces and in different ways for all of this, for all of us. It's one of the, it's one of the difficult things about experiencing loss. Two people can experience the same loss in completely different ways. And because they heal in different ways or process in different ways, it's difficult to walk through that together. I mean, I'm one of nine kids. At the same moment, nine children all lost a father. And I can, we process this in nine different ways. So it's okay to experience grief. Secondly, if you're someone who's walking through grief with someone, offer them godly counsel, but give them space. Give them space to grieve at their own pace. Now, I know this because I've been there. It's, it's real easy to sit back and say, look, you need to trust the Lord. That person may be trusting the Lord. But they might be praying something like, Lord, I believe, but would you help my unbelief? Because this really hurts. God, 
okay, like at one level, I believe that you're good, but man, it sure doesn't feel good. How, how, how can this be right? I mean, there comes a day when it's time to stop saying, how long, O Lord, Psalm 79.5, and move to Psalm 79.13, we will give thanks to you forever from generation to generation, we will recount your praise, but we have to give space for that to happen. And it's real easy, if you're a godly friend, trying to be a godly friend, to get to the point of questioning or assuming or accusing of, of bitterness or of a lack of faith, and that may be true, but we don't know if it's true. There is one Holy Spirit, and you ain't it. So give space to grieve. Now, this, this, this third thing is true, but I want to say it gently, and especially to those who are grieving right now, to those who are suffering right now. It's a hard truth, but it's a true truth. The highest value in the universe is not our comfort and safety, but God and his glory. The highest value in the universe is not our comfort and safety, but God and his glory. Now, this doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt. It doesn't mean that God doesn't care when his children hurt. It doesn't mean that God isn't a father who looks on us with compassion. He is, and he does. But imagine with me that you're General MacArthur, General Eisenhower, and you're sending 18, 19, some 16-year-olds who lied about it, but boys into war. And you're sending them, and they're storing beaches, and they're dying, and they're hurting. Now imagine in that moment, if you believed that the greatest value in the universe was individual comfort. There's no D-Day invasion. You can't do it. There must be a higher value. So, democracy, freedom, some higher ideal drives that. And for God's children, the highest value is God and his glory above all else, even when we don't understand in the moment how that can be true. Jim Elliott, missionary to Ecuador in the mid-20th century, went to reach an unreached tribe. He and four of his friends died and it was he who said, he who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose is no fool. There's a higher value in the universe. In John 9, this was Jesus' answer to his disciples. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That man walked through life blind so that Jesus could heal him and people could see the glory of our creator. So We don't always understand God's purposes, but we can always trust God's goodness even when we don't understand his ways. You see, when we don't understand, we trust God's goodness. We call this faith. Faith bridges the gap between what we know, very small, and what is true, all that God knows. Faith bridges the gap between what we can see and what God is doing. Faith bridges this gap. We trust God's goodness. We trust God's care. We trust God's power. Faith connects the dots for us. 
Imagine this morning that you didn't come here to worship. You came here to hop on an airplane. And you hop on the plane. We all hop on there. And there's one person on this plane that is beating on the door of the pilot's cockpit. And they demand, I want to see the flight plan. I want to inspect the instruments. Hey, can I see a map of the runways? I want to make sure that, hey, these runways are actually paved the way you say that they are. Does this thing have lights? Does this thing even have wings? No, what do we do? We generally hop on a plane and we trust that the pilot knows what he's doing. I mean, how much more should we trust the God of the universe to know what he is doing? If you can get in a car and press the accelerator and drive, if you can turn the lock in your door, if you can hop in a plane, you should trust the good creator that he's up to something even when you can't see it. The way that Romans 8 puts it is, how can he, who has given us his son, not with him also, freely give us all things? God is always good, always in control, even when we can't see it. So we trust, and we walk through life, and we say with Job, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that when all else falls, he will stand on the earth, and I can trust him. Let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now. God, I thank you for the book of Job and what a gift it is to us. It's not a matter of if we are experiencing grief. It's when we will experience suffering. And so, Lord, I pray that you will help us process suffering in a godly way. That we will trust your goodness, your ways. And Lord, we know one day we'll be in heaven and these questions will seem like a distant memory. So we look forward to that day, but today... We say our faith is in Christ, and I pray that uh, for those here who don't know Christ, God, that they would turn to him in hope. And for those of us who do, God, help us to cling to hope, to faith, even when we have trouble making sense of grief. And I pray this in Jesus' name.